The following episode of Humble and Fred is brought to you by GigSky, the Retirement Sherpa, the Chambers Plan, Bodog, and our newest sponsor, GoDaddy. Hello, I'm Toronto Mike, producer of Humble and Fred. Singer-songwriter Murray McLaughlin is probably best known for his trio of Canadian hits, Farmer's Song, Whispering Rain, and Down by the Henry Moore. The man's won 10 Juno Awards. He's been nominated 23 times. He's a member of the Order of Canada, as is his wife, Denise Donlan. Here he is on Humble and Fred. If Murray McLaughlin wants to, uh, after you finish tuning, you want to come sit down. Murray, we're going to have you uh, chit-chat for a while, and then uh, we'll grab your guitar. Hey, you don't have a chair with arms on, do you? What's that, my friend? a chair without any arms? Uh, yeah, yeah we, behind we, you. Yeah, but you know what, guys? Take, we'll, we'll have you sing after. We'll get that chair set up. But you sit down first, right. and then we'll get you all set up with the guitar in a bit. Mm-hmm. Unless oh, you want to, right from the get-go, sit down on a chair without arms. I could sit Bring down on the chair without arms. All right. Yeah, well, right there. So let's just arms. Arms. And play the guitar. Yeah. Right on. You can do it all. You can do it all because you're Murray McLaughlin. Murray. Murray McLaughlin. <laughs> no, I, I, I listen. And, and by the way, yeah, you're right. If a, if, but it, no, I, I, that wasn't the point you were making. Yeah. I get it now. No, yeah. I, you know, if you're doing a music video mm-hmm. and you'd like, look at all those artists in the 80s and 90s with George Bush and, and Ronald Reagan. And I mean, it's art. Well, Snoop Dogg videos, maybe not art, but I mean, it's. But a gun pointed at the head. That's well, it's First Amendment for them, right? But it, I thought in the video that I saw it was a plastic gun. That doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. How are you? All right. Now, like I said, we're yeah. going to, we, Murray, I was, what I'm trying to say is we're going to talk to you for some time before we have you play. So if you want to leave the guitar, you want to, it doesn't matter. But we need you closer to that microphone, it's is my like point. It's sucking your thumb, you know, it's. It's nice to have it nearby. Mm-hmm. I, I, the only thing that's preventing is you being heard. So that microphone is very... Being hurt? Heard. heard. Yeah, you're going to get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you don't look a bit like Howard Stern. Did you think you were going to be on the Howard Stern show? No. <laughs> that's right. He's going to go to... Yeah, going to be on that Howard guy's show on Sirius XM. Can you hear me? Uh, not really, but... Uh, he, he, what's that? We're getting a, my producer saying, what's that, Kyle? No, I know. Um, what I'm trying to suggest is you put the guitar down so that you can get really close. And then when you, when you sing, we'll get you mic differently. Thank you. What you're strongly suggesting. I, I don't know how many other ways I could say you need to get this close to the microphone. Yeah, these microphones, you really have to work them hard. This is an ongoing theme with our show. I know it's becoming quite tedious, but we're going to get new mics. Did you Purell the pop filter? <laughs> we we oh, probably right. should. Yeah, we, oh, right. Um, never thought of that. You never know where these things are. No, exactly. Some of the characters that have been through here, you're right. You're right. You know, right. normally we have like a big buildup and a huge introduction, and then it all becomes uh, clear. But all I can say is what a pleasure to welcome to these studios uh, somebody that everyone listening across Canada and mostly around the States would have heard about. Murray McLaughlin, everybody. <laughs> Murray, how about uh, 
Phil's going to Purell the pop. <laughs> He's um, Purelling the pop filter? <laughs> okay. You know, recently, I don't know if this is a place to start with you, but recently we had someone very close to you on this show. My wife, Denise Donlin, yeah, she has a book out. And, and really fabulous book, actually. And I got to tell you, we had a wonderful uh, discussion with her, and I hope she had enjoyed it, too. She seemed to. We had her on forever. My dear mother once advised me, in the very few times she ever gave me any advice, to marry a woman who was way smarter than me. Yeah. And, uh, and I got really lucky and, and did just that. Yeah, she's, she's a very, very nice but super-de-duper smarty-pants. She's and, uh, Yeah, she's a very, very capable woman, and she's a, a terrific... Ro- but the but thing to remember is, you know, you have to ask yourself, how good a husband am I? Because mm-hmm. I'm the guy that just, I just finished, you know, 13 concerts, and I sold her book on my merch table. Good wow. for you. Wow, good boy. So there. You know, no matter who you are or what you are, you're always like, well, I maybe score some points with the missus. Well, there is a good sales incentive because, as you know, the book is called Fearless as Possible Under the Circumstances. And I, I signed the, the, the signature page for authors. Right next to her signature, fearful as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when you're Murray McLaughlin and you're married to Denise Donlin, you're like this super uh, high-powered couple. Are you still? Do you still get a list on the weekends? Oh, hey Murray, if you get a chance, can you fix that? uh, (laughs) Can you go to the depot and fix that uh, washer in the tub or something? Not only do I do that, I actually enjoy it. I'm I'm the guy who can actually turn a wrench and keep the boats running. Nice. Um, yeah, and Denise is the kind of person who still, she doesn't get excited until it's 80% off, and she buys roasts on the day before the expiry date. She's very thrifty. Wow. Really? So, yeah. So, you know, we spend our dough on doing stuff that's life-enhancing, you might right. say. Like, you know, going and living in Italy for three months and finding every good wine in Tuscany. Wow. What's well, nice to be able to do that. It is, yeah. Well, that was, you know, it was my idea. She would have just worked through the whole thing, but I wanted to take a little break and get out of Canada yeah. and learn Italian. Vorrei una guitarra economica, per favore. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And honestly, I haven't seen you in a long time, and I didn't know what to expect for a man 68 approaching 69, if I got my math right. You look great, man. Well, you know, it takes, as Ronnie Hawkins says, it takes an awful lot of effort to look this bad. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, you know, all the years you've been yeah. in this lifestyle of touring and making music, yeah. and we're looking at Murray's 19th studio album, as I mentioned at the start. Was, were you, did you live, were you, were, was, was it different when you were younger, when you first started out on the road? Were you, like a lot of young musicians, uh, sort of, you know, hell-bent on seeing how much you could ingest and abuse? At 19, I knew nothing, uh, was full of existential anger, um, really couldn't play all that well yet, um, was desperately trying to write stuff that was like horribly, horribly, horribly earnest for the most part, but sometimes worked. Um, And now I'm very comfortable with who it is that I am, and I've spent a lot of time learning to do what I do, and I'm very comfortable doing what I do. Yeah. And um. You know, I feel that, you know, the the work that I do now is probably the best that I've ever been able to do. And I, it seems to continue getting better all of the time, at least by my standards. So, uh, When did the comfort happen. kick in? Like in your 40s, 50s, 60s? Have you ever had a dog? Yeah. 
Well, you know, if you get it when it's a little puppy, yeah, it's all paws. Yeah. And uh, eventually, like, the dog gets bigger and the paws stay the same size. And they uh-huh. call it growing into your paws. Right. And people are like that. Yeah. Eventually, you stop casting some idealized image of what it is you're supposed to live up to or be in front of you and trying to move into that, which is very difficult and oftentimes something you fail at. And takes a lot of energy. And mm-hmm. eventually, you just you get very Excuse me, you get very comfortable with who it is that you are. Mm -hmm. But isn't it interesting in those years, sort of 19 to 30 in a musician's life, and a lot of artists as well, in that time period, you know, you, even though you say uh, you were young and earnest and, you know, putting out this ideological, (laughs) you know, version of your, the way you see the world, you know, like a lot of 19 year old people, they're like, oh, I'm pretty sure. I have a 19 year old daughter who's the surest person I've ever met. She's sure she knows everything, and I know nothing. But I was going to say, in that period between 19 and 30, you can also, you put out a lot of pretty good songs, like a lot of artists. So it might be, you might have been new at the craft, but you'd put out some pretty good things. Well, the great thing, when we were working, Bernie Finkelstein and Graham Stairs and I on doing a compilation for a, a big double CD that True North put out, was a lifetime kind of compilation. So I was going through all of the songs, you know, from child song which was basically the first song i ever wrote all the way up to you know modern times and even though i say those things about that kid you know that 19 or 20 year old kid i still fundamentally like who he was Mm -hmm. and like my old buddy bart skulls used to say i mean he was a very eloquent person he did all the cover art for the early true north records Mm -hmm. and bart used to say um you know the purpose of life is to uh not be somebody when you're 80 that you would have hated when you were 15. So, you know, mm-hmm. you get the perspective from both sides. I mean, I still, that ideological kid still is still in here. I guess you're just more comfortable in how you, how you know now how to express the ideology versus yeah. when you're a kid, you're just sort of stumbling around. But again, you put out some pretty good music in those years. Yeah, and also the point of the exercise for me is reinvention. You know, the mid-period in, in a artist career that you talked about is a time when oftentimes people will feel the most pressure to do what's expected of them while the desire to do something new and reinvent themselves is pressing on them from the other side so you know it's people do interesting things during that period like you know Nora Jones for instance who made like those you know, a couple of really seminal, beautiful, tight, little, wildly acoustic, gorgeous albums that nobody had heard the mm-hmm. like of in years. And then suddenly she went off and wrote a lot of songs with her boyfriend and made this weird kind of bluesy rock album that nobody liked very yeah. much. Mm-hmm. You, um, so in the early 70s, you were in Toronto, right? Part of that music culture in Toronto, were you? Oh, yeah, absolutely, sure. And it was quite a time, wasn't it? Did you do? You, were you hobnobbing with the likes of Neil Young and you mentioned Ronnie Hawkins? It was well, not only hobnob with Neil. I did the Tonight's the Night tour with him from Boston to Berkeley. Wow! I was the human sacrifice between Nils Lofgren and Grin and Neil. That was the era of Quaaludes and wine. There you go. <laughs> now we're getting right. to it. Yeah, there were. You know, uh, it was an odd sort of tour because Neil had written all these really dark songs about a guy in his entourage who had overdosed. Right. And uh, the tour was really orphaned by his management. Uh, mm-hmm. Neil wanted to do small halls, which meant, you know, 6,000 people in Boston Symphony Hall. He didn't want to do arenas. So, uh, you know, I I went and did a guest thing with him while he was up in Canada. Um, 
he had a like a sort of a warm-up concert at one of the universities so we were hanging out and i played and i had just i think i had just finished the album with down by the henry moore on it mm-hmm. so we were kind of doing all right and neil kind of went oh and said well why don't you come on the rest of the tour so it was really an eye-opener. It truly was. As I mentioned, the Quaaludes and Wine, like having 6,000 hostile, really stoned-out college kids screaming at you in a most profane fashion to get the F off the stage was really an experience. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> you know, singing Goodbye mm-hmm. Mama, Goodbye Papa to a rock and roll crowd. Mm-hmm. When, when you started off in the scene here in Toronto in the late 60s and early 70s, so Neil Young's around. And who are some of the other contemporaries that you... You look back at that period and think, wow, man, I was making music with some pretty... Well, I think probably the most, uh, for me, the little microcosm. I mean, obviously, there were a lot of people who were being tremendously successful around. But my little microcosm, you know, my cocoon of creativity was really what Bernie Finkelstein created at True North Records. And I was on the label. Bruce Coburn was on the label. Luke Gibson was on the label. Uh, the early band Syrinx, the first sort of Moog synthesizer band. Eventually, Carol Pope, uh, yeah. Dan Hill. You know, there are all these. And what Bernie did was to create this little place where you could just stretch out and make what kind of music that you wanted without feeling any sort of pressure to fit it into some economic model. So the result was there was a real burst of uh, of interesting different creative music that came out of that label at that time you know you mentioned too ronnie hawkins he he's really held in high regard by the community isn't he even t- to this day well, ronnie's a great character yeah no i know yeah. i've had the pleasure yeah. of being in his house a couple yeah. of times in recent history and to sit have you, you've been up there in stony lake and sure i mean i, I sit in that room he's a little piano. more infirm now but yeah, it was right. a regular occurrence to run into ronnie at the stony lake market yeah. right actually when um the the australian journalist uh, who just passed away uh, i've forgotten his name off the top of my head but uh he was hang. The, he was there with Ronnie when uh, they did the John Lennon and Yoko uh, residency mm-hmm. um, in Mississauga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they would they would show up at the market regularly and hi, how do you do? When I first met Ronnie actually at Gordon Lightfoot's house when he he walked in the front door and said something highly insulting to my first wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's him. You know, you, we, you in that last couple of minutes you mentioned you know. Gordy Lightfoot, Bruce Coburn, Neil Young, Murray McLaughlin. It's an interesting group of sort of singer-songwriters. You know, Neil's uh, electric aside, there's a real... What is it about us that we produce that type of singer-songwriter? It's interesting. I just wrote an essay for um, a project. It's kind of 150 anniversary of Canada project for it around the Juno Awards. And uh, what I pointed out was when Bruce and I toured Japan in the 1970s, we went there and I'd never been there before. I didn't read Shogun on purpose, all of it. you know. But Japan was a real eye-opening experience for me because there was a huge uh, fan club base for Canadian music. Yeah. And when I talked to Japanese college kids about it, they really drew a very clear distinction between music that came out of Canada and music that came out of the United States or out of the UK, for that matter. And kind of boiling it down to its essence, what they were really saying was that our singer-songwriters are to Canada kind of what poets are to Russia. 
There's a real kind of um, there's a feeling. The way I put it is there's a wind that blows through us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everybody's got like a little bit of the breath of that wind in them. It's, you know, we live in a country that in which we exist at its discretion. We, you know, we've never conquered Canada. We're we're a, we're ticks on the ass end of Canada. You know, whatever it decides to do to us, it will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of a feeling here that, you know, you can fall off the edge of the country. You really can and disappear. We, you know, we, we're, we're different in that respect. And I think, you know, there is that there are classic lines in Canadian songs that you can think of that are really, to my mind, in, intellectually, ideologically, really, really Canadian like. And completely you know, different. There's then. a crack in everything yeah. where the light comes through or Joni's, you know, I wish I had a river I could skate away on or you know, mm-hmm. all these. They're just wonderful. Bruce Colbert, what's that line you love from, uh, I love it too, from... I know, it was La 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 La. No, no, no. The, Col- the Bruce Colbert song, Kick of the Darkness. Till sorry. it bleeds daylight. Yeah, that's a good... I'm sorry, I was just screwing with you. No, no, okay. that's fine. No, you can but... screw with us all you want. Um, was American success... I was, just, I was hoping Bruce was actually listening there. Yeah, we're just hoping anyone's listening at this point, Murray. Is Bruce still in the area, do you know? We Bruce lives in San Francisco. Oh. I, I haven't seen him in quite a long time, but Bernie still manages him, and uh, he... Bernie... Um, uh, sorry, Bruce is a new father, actually. He uh, Get out. he um, found a lovely lady, apparently, and um, decided to become a father in his 70s. Good for him. So he's... Uh, his, I know. <laughs> his preoccupation now is taking his toddler to school. I mean, that's Good kind of the him. deal. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and uh, a lot of... I ran into somebody last night who's uh, younger than that, 52 years old, who's got a two-year-old. And we were talking, because I, I, I find it fascinating. My kids are 19 and 22, and I'm like, what is that? What is that going back in time? You know, because he's got like the 22-year-old, and now he's got a two-year-old. Uh, but I, what I wanted to focus on a little bit before I forget is that idea of, you know, a, a uniquely Canadian style of music. And it continues today with a guy like Ronnie Sexsmith. You know, someone that people that are... And, and Leonard Cohn, you mentioned. There's a whole p- sort of pantheon of Canadian singer-songwriters there's of a certain some, style. There's some coming up that I think you should really keep your eye on, too. I mean, Tom Wilson, you know, Junkhouse yep. and Blackie and the Rotary Kings, is a, a really amazing guy. He's a tremendous character, and he's a great artist. But his son, like his boy, who's just coming up, I, like I just did three dates with, I just went out and did it for fun, like to play with Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. We did the Jack Singer and the Windspear and one other place. Out in Calgary. And yeah, and his uh, son, Thomas, was opening the show. And he just blew me away. He's like a 25-year-old guy, tall, you know, good-looking kid, but he's a really great songwriter. And he uses his voice in a way I've never heard anybody do before. Like he He's almost like in between his lines and phrases, he's singing lead guitar solos. He gets out there in front of like thousands of people with just an acoustic guitar, and you can hear a pin drop. What's his name? Uh, Thomas Wilson? Thomas Wilson, yeah. All right. Now, that's the type of music that probably wouldn't get music airplay? Not at the, the current fashion is against that trend, yeah. Right. So how does a guy like that build a career? By doing that? The, same, to- the same way I maintain one. You go out and play. Yeah. And you're you really, know, yeah. if 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 persons such as myself or even you know Leonard Cohen for that mm-hmm. matter didn't go out and perform concerts, uh, they would disappear over the edge of the horizon mm-hmm. because your base is really with your with your fans and the people that are going to stay with what it is that you do. There is no help to be 
present company accepted, of course, but in the general sense, the old model where you put out a record, it gets played in radio, the record company promotes it, you go out and tour and blah, blah, blah. It's, yeah, it's all that's gone. C- completely yeah. poof. Yeah, that little, that little runt called Napster took care of that. Right. And now into Spotify, it continues. Yeah, you get 52 trillion hits and you make a buck 47. No. What's funny? It's tragic, isn't it, when you think about it? Well, it, you know, it's, it's also interesting from my perspective... Like, music happens, in a sense, the way it always did, by kind of odd personal context. Like, I have a, I just had a song recorded by a huge, this huge rock and roll band in the United States, which tickled me pink. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, I mean, I just got my first royalty check from BMG, and I went, thank you, Jesus. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Um, it's a band called Widespread Panic, but it came about in this really weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, Eddie Schwartz, the guy who wrote Hit Me With Your Best Shot, calls me up from Nashville. He says, there's this guy in L.A. who wants to get in touch with you. Is it okay if I give him your coordinates? Yes, of course. Turned out to be this guy named John Reese Eddins. The name kind of rang a bell. Got in touch with him. Turned out we had a mutual friend. He was the guy that produced the first album for Warren Zevon. Wow. He was part of that whole Waddy Wattel, Jackson Brown, California Mafia crowd, right? And now he had a kind of... He was retired. He had this kind of grungy old guy band, and they played in clubs around L.A., and they were doing my song, Hockey Red. But he didn't know it was my song. Mm -hmm. So his son, it turns out, is the bass player in this band called Widespread Panic. His son heard the song said, well, I really like that song. You know, we might take it to the band. Who wrote it? I don't know. So some research was done. They found the guitar player that used to work with Tom Rush, Trevor Veach, who's doing film and TV in L.A., and said, and they thought it was his song. So they got in touch with Trevor. He said, no, no, this guy in Canada wrote it. So finally they got in touch with me. The next thing I know, Widespread Panic is doing this song in concerts, and like 20,000 people are standing up in a stadium every time the big line comes up and throwing their hands in the air and screaming, I don't give a good goddamn. So no, it was a and what's the name of the song, Murray? It was the Honky Red. Ho- called Hon- Honky Red? or hon- Yeah, it's, it's a notorious song. It was... It was actually cut by Waylon Jennings, and all kinds of people did it, but it would never, nobody would ever put it on the record because it had uh, blasphemy. Blasphemous. It was um, blasphemous. What, what, speaking of being covered, you know, like another guy that has been on our show and a friend of mine is Tom Cochran. And, you yeah, know, yeah. When, when whoever that, I mean, Life is a Highway made, uh, sold uh, tons, but then who was the... Um, Rascal Flats. When Rascal Flats, mm-hmm. as he calls it, looks like it's the uh, song that they... Was it, the place in Austin was paid for by the royalties from Rascal Flats. Yeah. Who was? What's the biggest cover of yours? Who? Who? What would it have been? It might be this one. This one? Yeah. Okay. But I mean, certainly the one that was the biggest for me as far as a career establishing thing. Um, the one that really stands out was two songs were covered early on by Tom Rush on his first Columbia album. He was wow. a, for those who don't know, he was a really huge star in the kind of folk. And he was a guy who was known for discovering singer-songwriters. He was the first guy to record uh, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, and Jackson wow. Brown. I, so to be recorded by Tom was really, really something. That was big. You, you know, you've been friends, you know, thinking about all the people that we've talked about so far. And you're, you, know, you toured the Bruce Coburn. You, you know, obviously a contemporary of all those people you just mentioned, whether it's T- James Taylor or Jackson Brown. Do you ever have this uh, happen to you when you're listening to somebody else? Maybe it's a friend like Bruce or a, somebody you've, you know, an acquaintance like Jackson Brown, and you hear their song and you think, oh, man, I could have, I wish I, why didn't I get, why didn't I think of that phrase? Or, why, you know, do you ever hear a song and go, damn, I wish I would have written it? 
if I ever felt that way, it would be farther back in the in the songwriters lexicon, probably going back to the golden age of, you know, Sammy Kahn and Cole Porter yeah, and yeah. folks like that, because the style in which I work is really in fact, the style by, in which Gordon Lightfoot or Bruce Coburn or Joni Mitchell or me work, they're all really radically different. They're all very different takes. And, uh, like, they're so dissimilar in, you know, musical conception and also in philosophical conception in some cases that, you know, I mean, there's plenty of room for everybody, <laughs> I guess. That's what I'm getting at. There's plenty of room for everybody's style. Yeah. What about uh, today? Uh, you mentioned the... Uh, the one kid, but do you ever listen to the radio? Is there, do you hear Canadian artists currently that you're impressed with or unimpressed? Like um, even as far as like Drake goes, Justin Bieber. I mean, these are the Canadians now that are the most notable. Yeah, that's the pop music of the day. Um, what do you think of that? Do you think that's good music, bad music, or just well, today's music? You know, I mean, I, I don't have my pants stuck up around my chest uh-huh and <laughs> but the, yeah, when do we all do that by the way i've got no ass left so is that coming for me where i gotta have my my waistline is gonna be at my sternum the sad truth is yes yeah it's coming <laughs> it's coming oh, i know but, you know the thing is it's like yeah you have your musical bags and it's not really a prejudice against what's popular in fact it's really insulting to diss what's popular because mm -hmm. what you're really doing ultimately is dissing the people that like it right you know and like i'm not gonna sit there and like call a bunch of people idiots because they love justin bieber because they love drake however my prejudice and i find that it's true of a lot of the younger um music people that i run into my prejudice is i love the the clear evidence that somebody can actually play. Mm -hmm. You mean as a, in terms of their chops, their ability? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the records that are made are kind of like heavily auto-tuned soundscapes. Like sure. They're put together electronically. They're put together as soundscape tracks, and then kind of a song is drifted into it in some way. They're yeah. mashups. They're you know, it's it's created beyond you their. Know, by yeah. the same token, I mean, there's a band out out of Paris. Mm -hmm called caravan palace that's yeah really 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 new but their mashup is to take like paris hot club swing music mm -hmm. and mash it up with electro pop and these like really what i mean they've started a dance craze out of paris which is loosely based on the charleston it's like swing dancing amazing <laughs> and it is the wildest thing you've ever seen i love it my my 26 year old son turned me on to them yeah you know, it's funny you said that about soundscapes. And, you know, my, my daughter's, one of my daughter's favorites is uh, Drake. And, and, you know, when we were younger, you know, you'd listen to a Murray McLaughlin song or one of your fans, and, and you'd see somebody playing music. Mm -hmm. My kids don't care, or this one especially doesn't care whether Drake can play a lick of a, uh, an mm -hmm. instrument or not, just enjoys the sound. And, you know, he, they're popular for a reason. He's writing some good hooks. Yep. But when you, it's a different experience live than if I come and see, sure. you know, you guys, uh, you guys play because you're really playing those instruments. There's only one thing I kind of find myself wishing about the current, you know, kind of reality television juiced music culture such as it is, is that, you know, I just wish they'd spend their money on better stuff than Bugatti Verons and throwing it around like bullshit. <laughs> I'm not sure what a Bugatti it's, is. It's, that a car? It's hmm. yeah. It's a really stupid, expensive car that's useless. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's it's really, really effing vulgar. And you know, there's so much shit, better shit you could be doing with your money than what those people are doing with it, and they should be ashamed of themselves. That's all. That's what, what I got they? to say about the music scene. <laughs> okay. 
Um, so what if you would have made tons and tons of money? What you would have? I'd spend it differently. I'd keep some and spend most of it doing something like you know Warren Buffett does. He puts ninety-five or maybe more percent of what he makes back into a. Bill Gates, everybody's doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're throwing it back into trying to resurrect Africa, establish satellite communication system, give everybody Wi-Fi, give everybody medical, build roads, schools, you know. For the good people. of all, I suppose. Yeah, help yeah. people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, all, I'm all over that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask a question. We're going to take a break in a couple seconds here uh, along Sirius XM. The voice in our studio today is Maureen McLaughlin, who has been making pretty great music for a pretty long time. Uh, you talked about the 19-year-old you, the ideology of youth, and, and you're wide-eyed. And you, and you actually said something I thought was interesting about you feel more comfortable in, in all aspects of, a, of an artist's life. But also, as a, are you as good a player as you – are you a better player now than you were at 19? Very you just much. know more? Yeah, very much so. In fact – Do you uh, play every day? Uh, uh, yeah, pretty much. Like you on on off yeah, on off days you get that guitar and you're screwing around with it. Remember you were asking about like the inevitability of your pants getting. My up pants to your are chest? coming up. Yes. Well, there's another inevitability that you know when you get to be 68, as I am pushing 69, you have to be very very careful to keep your mm-hmm. body parts in shape so they work. I mean, I have incipient arthritis in a couple of my fingers, and it's harder to make a C chord than it was. I actually have to warm. I have to keep playing so I can play, and so yeah, that I do practice sense. every day. No, that that does make sense, especially. Because you're going to go out and tour, I'm, I guess you're doing some shows for this 19th studio album called Love Can't Tell Time. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but I, I was thinking more about the interest of somebody that's played their whole lives, and that guitar is usually somewhere in your, in your house. And you, so you go to it every day, not just, as you say, as a soother, but also something you need to do to keep these fingers limber. There was a real sea change that I went through just around the time that Denise and I went to live in Italy. And... It was re, kind of rediscovering that what I really like to do the most, what, what I love to do the most, is to play music. And during that period of time, I bought a cheap guitar in Italy, and I'd sit out in this little veranda we had overlooking the Arno, and I'd just sit there in the morning, and I'd just play guitar. Like, half the time, I had my ear on it. And I just really fell in love with the way it sounded again. And I was in the middle of learning a new kind of language on the guitar at the time, so that was sort of exciting, too. A different picking style, or...? Uh, well, I could demonstrate. Absolutely. I, mean, I don't know if people oh, want to hear it or not. I'd love to shit it. Here, let me, let me make sure that this makes sure that mic. Okay, that's the mic. So give me an example of what you're talking about. Well, you know, like a folk kind of chord, you know. You got those old folk chords where you got, you know, you know, rock stuff. But the stuff I'm learning was more like a... My favorite. Those jazz chords? Yeah. You know, I I love that. How long ago was this Italy trip? Uh, 2013. So you think about it. All the years you've been playing, and even a guy at your level can can start to fool around with an instrument you've been playing since you were a kid and still go oh there's some new there's something new in this that yeah. and and yeah. something that would have would have caught your attention well that process i don't believe that process should ever stop um you know i find that you know learning or making music is the same really as painting or a lot of other experiences that i'd classify as existential you know they're the ones that shut up the chatter that's in your head all the time you, you understand what I mean? Oh, I do. The, 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 monkey, the monkey brain. Yeah, well, I often riff on this on stage that, you know, like there's two people in us. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the kind of idealized 
polish it up and shove it out in the world self that you hope people will accept as who you are and then there's the person that you know you are you hope people don't find out about yeah, yeah the one that we spend all day hoping oh, yeah. no one yeah. actually sees yeah so you're kind of sitting there all the time having this inner dialogue between these two parts of yourself you know mm-hmm. it's not really quite as simple as what kind of cereal you're going to have in no, the morning no exactly but um you know it's it's um it's a fun place from from which to work um you know for me reinvention learning these things what, what all the things i've been involved in whether it's painting or karate or flying airplanes have been things that sort of still that inner dialogue and a quiet place in your head is a really good place to be for periods of time when you went to italy and you're there for three months you're in tuscany i've been there too your head's in a completely different space oh yeah did you create does that yeah absolutely open doors that absolutely. you don't get by being in the middle of the city of toronto well i think i love being in toronto i mean it's uh-huh. it's my hometown i emigrated here when i was a small child and i grew up here i could be a cab driver here i know every alley um, <laughs> but you know it's i think it's important you know you see this in the united states that you talk to that an average person in the united states and they don't know shit about the world they haven't been outside of the state that yeah. they live in nor yeah. do they get any information that's not filtered through their own media which is very america-centric yes so i think if you're gonna be a person who has the right to have an opinion then you have to broaden your experience enough to actually merit having one mm-hmm. and i find it's very important to get out of this country from time to time just to kind of get a good look at the life experience of being here mm-hmm. Um, and how other people live. I really wanted to actually learn how to get groceries and do the laundry and actually converse with people in some respectful way in Italian, which I did. Mm-hmm. And that was really a great thing. You know, those comparisons, we were talking about that this morning, like Beauty and the Beast in Malaysia. They're not going to show it in the theaters because there's a gay scene. Yeah. And it just, yeah. and we might making that point. Sometimes you got to look out at that kind of stuff and appreciate what we have here. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that. That kind of thing, everybody goes tut-tut Malaysia, but that kind of thing is always just sitting under the surface oh, where yeah. we live. Mm-hmm. And believe me, right there's, on. you know, the, a lot of North Americans are, you know, have call it, I call it pretend tolerance. Uh, yeah. Murray McLaughlin's here with us for uh, a little longer. It's Humble and Fred Radio live this morning around North America on Sirius XM. You can download this episode later if you like, if you missed any parts. Uh, Murray's going to play something from his 19th uh, studio album in a second or two. Come on back. It's Humble and Fred R- Radio. Did you see them on a Hey guys, this is Mae Martin. You're listening to Canada Laughs on Sirius XM. Since I met you, since you found it in your heart to say I do, some guys might think they got it made caught up in the social world. I know I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I'm the luckiest guy, and that's a fact. One look at you convinced me I could not turn back. You'd stand right out in any crowd of thoroughbred city girls. I know I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Welcome back, everybody. It's Humble and Fred Radio around North America on Sirius XM. Murray McLaughlin from Love Can't Tell Time. There's a little sample of something called The Luckiest Guy. And uh, we're pretty lucky to have Murray McLaughlin in the 5-Hour Energy Studios. Frederick. 
Yes, the Five Hour Energy Studios. Five Hour Energy, small bottle, big results. You know that. Comes in a multitude of flavors. Gives you the boost you need to get through a quick, simple, effective, fast, and easy to consume. Zero sugar, only four calories. Five Hour Energy. Yes, a little tiny small bottle, but you get big results. Well, during the break, they were talking to Murray about uh, flying airplanes. I was uh, got my license in 2004, and I flew pretty regularly. I think about 700 hours until about 2008 or 9, and then I got divorced, and uh, that uh, I sold the, the airplane. Yes, then, sold the yeah. airplane. Uh, stop flying as much because one of those forces that acts on uh, flight is money, as you know. Oh. And how about how about you? Do you st- are you still current, or do you have you put it aside? No, I don't fly anymore. Um, I, I wrapped that up um, after um, I had a very unfortunate medical incident where some well-meaning doctors attempted to kill me. Ah, um, the result was that I had to have open heart surgery to repair what they had done, and uh, lost my medical at that point in time. Took several years to get it back by that point all my ratings had lapsed and i was very rusty because people often ask me because uh, you know i haven't sorted I haven't, I haven't been pic of an airplane in a couple of years and they say well you know would you have to start all over again i said no as soon as your medical's current at our age it's every two years um you know within a few hours you can sort of mm-hmm. get it get it back but it's a very disposable skill it's like you were talking about playing guitar every day when i was flying three four times a week I was very, very responsive to the aircraft. Now I could get in it, and I would be like a little bit clunky. And well, before uh, this, you know, I was current, certainly experienced and current enough before this incident happened that you know I could easily single pilot through very bad weather without looking out the window a complex multi-engine aircraft while talking to air traffic control and writing shit on my knee pad. Yeah, um, it you know was not a problem. Um, after the surgery, I didn't feel that I could multitask quite as well as I did before. It's just one of those things that happens. Quickly, what what happened? What did the doctors do? Um, I had to submit to um, uh, a test procedure called an angiogram to see whether or not I had, uh, um, you know, arth- arthrosclerosis, I think they call it. Uh, I didn't have any worse than anybody else my age would have, um, but there had been a change in the ECG reading that the aviation medical examiner found, and they wouldn't sign me off to fly unless I submitted to the test. So I had this test, and while undergoing the test, it's a catheterization where they right. thread a basically a wire up from your femoral artery into your heart, release a bunch of dye and take pictures. They tore my coronary artery. Jeez. So it's one of those scenes where, you know, if I'd gotten the cab to go home, which I really wanted to do, I would have died in the cab on the way home. Well, <laughs> on that note. Uh, um, so and that ended your uh, flying career. Well, it would, have, yeah. it would have cut short a few albums anyway. <laughs> so Murray McLaughlin, Ian Thomas, Mark Jordan. And uh, please remind me, I always forget her name. Cindy Church. Uh, and uh, Many years ago, I uh, decided, how did that come about? You, just, you called the project Lunch at Allen's. It, it actually happened because of the, you know, the story about the surgery. That happened just before Christmas. And when I was recovering in the hospital, at this point, whacked out of my brains on morphine and blowing the little ball up the tube, Ian and Tom Cochran and Mark showed up at the hospital to sing me Christmas carols. So they turned the whole ward into a Frank Capra movie. (laughs) (laughs) Filipino nurses with Santa hats leaning in the door and smiling the whole nine yards. And I'm sitting there on the bed just bawling my eyes out because I was really just moved at 
my friends would humiliate themselves to that extent <laughs> on my behalf. So anyway, I, I wanted to have a kind of a gratitude lunch when I got out and got back on my feet. I went. I did the Everly Brothers tour at Massey and uh, National Arts Center in Hamilton Place, and then called a, called a lunch. Invited Ian to to come to lunch and Tom, which they did. We met at Allen's restaurant on the Danforth, and lunch kind of turned into dinner. And everybody on the planet stopped by. I mean, at one point it was like Cochran and Ian and Mark and Jim Cuddy and Greg Keeler and a cast of thousands. We were all just snockered. And at one point I put my arm lovingly around Ian and said, you know, we have to do something together. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the opportunity came up. Um, an agent called me up and asked if I would uh, take part in a songwriters on stage. They had a chain of six theaters that wanted to do this thing. I hate those things. I really do, because it's like the old actor's joke, you know, bullshit, 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 my song. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I said, well, who do I have to do it with? And they said, anybody you want. Aha, said I. And I called up Ian and said, listen, you've been locked in a studio doing film and TV for the last 15 years. Do you want to come out and play? And he sort of said, yeah, okay, sure, why not? Uh, and then we thought, who, get, who else can we get? He thought of Mark. So we called up Mark. Mark said no. Uh, and then he sort of hemmed and hawed, and I said, listen, will you go on the road if I actually make a cast of your wife's breast that you can sleep on at night? <laughs> then he said yes. That's a handy skill. Yeah, he said yes. Um, so then we were casting about for another person to take part in the thing, and I thought of Shirley Eckhart because she'd had that monster hit, and she's a wonderful gal. Um, you know, she had the hit with Bonnie Ray. Let's give him something to talk about. Mm -hmm. But surely by this point, I mean, she owned that song, Lock, Stock and Barrel, all of it, publishing the whole deal. So she was happily living up in the Ottawa Valley with her dogs and her friend and, you know, basically rolling around in her money at night like Scrooge McDuck. So she didn't really want to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then Ian suggested Cindy Church. And I thought, oh, yeah, my God. Yeah, I remember her from the Great Western Orchestra and Quartet and these different bands. I said, she's terrific. So we called her up and she said, sure. And ultimately, she's kind of the the uh, like the vocal glue that really blends the band together so beautifully. And they're all grown up people. They're all wonderful people to work with. I love them all. They're like, you know, there's that saying, your friends are the family you choose. Well, they yeah. are. Yeah. And how long did that last? Because when I'm trying to think the, the year that I worked with you and Ian, at that point, it was just, I think it was 87, sorry, sorry 2007, maybe eight. But at that point, when we worked together in Moose Jaw, there was, I think it was just you and Ian on stage. So did you go out in various incarnations of Lunch at Allen's? No, um, Ian and I did that because we both were authors. We got invited by Gary Hyland, now now passed away, to, yeah. to do it because we both had books. And uh, and we just went out for a lark, really. Okay. In fact, we played hooky from that event to go up the road to the theater and see Ratatouille. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, uh, great. The uh, the lunch at Alice thing is ongoing. I mean, we never expected it to really last a long time, but we've just done. I think it's our sorry, maybe our sixth album. It, it's just about to be released. It's called uh, "If It Feels Right," and. You know, for me, the most beautiful song on it is is one of Mark's songs. It's just gorgeous. You know, you remember you were asking, is there something you wish you'd actually written? Maybe that's it. It's this beautiful song he wrote about lying on the dock with his kids looking at the stars and thinking about the past when human beings explored and thinking about maybe his kids kind of cartwheeling through the universe. And it's called We All Come From Away. It's a wow. beautiful song. 
You know, he has a song a couple of years ago. I was working with Kim Stockwood, and he came in on the radio show I was on. There's a co-write on my record with Kim. With Kimmy? Yeah. Oh, she's something else. So, you know. So Murray comes in, and he does an acoustic version of a Christmas song he had just written. This is probably f- six years ago. I think about you every time it snows. Have you ever? Um, yeah. Um, honestly, it's one, every time it's Christmas. Every, yeah, yeah I, I just love it. It's it's funny because it's not that well known, and I wish it were because it's one of the best cr- wintry Christmas sort of. I don't mind saying that Zuzu's Petals is the best goddamn Christmas album that's ever been made. It's also mostly totally original music. We wrote it. It's all secular Christmas songs. And we had a ball. And it was it. you and Mark and... Yeah, me, Mark, Ian, and Cindy. Wow. Cindy. Um, how about some uh, something from Love Can't Tell Time, uh, Murray's album, which is available where people get music, wherever that is. That's a feature on iTunes. It's on Spotify. I'm looking at it right now. Right on. Uh, what are we going to hear? Let me turn that mic on for you, sir. Do you need phones? Do you want to put phones on for yeah, this at all? Okay. You're fine. I can hear myself fine. People in their prime can hit the sack and still be active. Contrary to most thinking man, they often are attractive. Maybe not to callow boys or shallow little girls who've yet to learn its time and where puts luster on the pearl. Love can come. Anytime at 17 or 99, while your heart's still beating and the sun keeps shining, love just can't tell time. Look at that moon smiling while it shines. Ain't changed much since you were 29 And you're still just a sucker for that same old line Love just can't tell time Love's a risky business You're old enough to know it Not many ways to make it work And a lot of ways to blow it You think the book of love is closed Chapter, verse, and letter Then love comes sneaking up on you You'd have thought that you'd know better business you're old enough to know it not many ways to make it work and a lot of ways to blow it you think the book of love is closed chapter verse and letter then love comes sneaking upon you you'd have thought that you'd know better but just Look at that moon Baby, it sure looks fine 
just like it did in days of old lang syne and you're still just a sucker for that same old line love just can't tell time love just can't tell time that is so nice that's They're crazy, beautiful. man. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the uh, what I mean meant by the new guitar language. Uh, I see it. Well, I was going to say that's the Italian music there. <laughs> it's it's amazing to watch you play that, and just how easy all that comes to you. What what in that particular case? What happened first? The uh, the lyrics or the uh, the music? The that's, run that you just did there. Well, that song I wrote. It's a co-write with a really dear friend of mine who passed away, um, unfortunately, before I finished the record. Named Allison Gordon. And Allison had, uh, you know, late in her life, she was in her 60s at this point, uh, suddenly found herself the other woman in a love triangle. And she was just tickled pink. Um, She had a tattoo on her backside. It was a heart that said, your name here. Uh, oh, she was quite correct. a character. Allison was the first woman sports writer. Well, I was going to say, yeah. you, Allison uh, yeah, she wrote, the she sports writer. She was right. on the Blue Jays circuit yeah. following the baseball team. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she's a very colorful gal, and she was a great friend. So we wrote that song together because, you know, her feeling was, you know, love doesn't just happen when you're, you know, Romeo and Juliet. It can mm-hmm. happen in a Chartwell residence, and it often does. So, you know, keep an eye on mom and dad, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, Murray McLaughlin. Uh, it's interesting. You, we have this another release, uh, lunch at Allen's. Do you have a? Uh, is it a? Do you have an appetite to go out and play still? I have just finished eight of my own concerts. I've just finished three with Blackie and the Rodeo Kings for fun. I've got nineteen concerts coming up with lunch at Allen's before the end of October, and then ten more of my own in November. So. Yeah, I'm kind of out there. And they're all nice theaters with good pianos and good tech, and, and nice. people show up. And Hallelujah. How, and how far will you go? Coast Anyone? to coast, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last of the Lunch at Allen's days are all the theaters out in eastern Canada. You know, the Rebecca Cohen, the Fredericton Playhouse, that that bunch. And then uh, out west, uh, Lunch at Allen's, 10 dates, it'll be, you know, they make first and Playhouse in Victoria and that. that but nice soft of, seat theaters. Oh, yeah. yeah um, really but lovely. it's, it's uh, March now, uh, so you're not going to tour this record right away or just going to let it go out there? Well, or? I have. Uh, as I said, I've just okay. done uh, uh, a bunch Eight of shows. concerts. Yeah, the Centerpoint Theater and the Grand and the really Opera House and the Showplace in Peterborough. did a bunch of concerts, and I will do, like, you know, again, more concerts in November, but first comes Lunch at Allen's. And I'm doing a lot of, you know, kind of out and playing for folks such as yourself just to let people know it's there. Do you um, have a relationship at all with Gord Downey? I, I, I've met him. I don't really know him. Mm-hmm. No, not not specifically. My wife knows him better because, you know, she's been more in the rock and roll scene over the years. I'm very aware of what's going on No, you uh, mentioned Allison Gordon, and I just thought... Um you know, the, what he's going through now, whether you had any type of relationship with him and where that's at. No, it's it's interesting what he is going through. I mean, I've been involved. I'm on the board of directors of an organization called Room 217 Foundation, and, and uh, it was specifically founded to uh, uh, assist and create uh, music therapy training and programs for palliative care situations. Mm-hmm. Right now, actually, we have a new program called Pathways, which is a singing program. It's meant to go into... 
you know, respite centers, places where people are, are in uh, for Alzheimer's and dementia. And uh, I'm actually putting together a benefit co- concert. It's put together. It's like Margaret Atwood, Ben Hepner, uh, Natalie McMaster and Danelle Leahy, Matt Anderson, myself, I'm going to play. Albert Schultz from Soul Pepper Theater is going to yeah, sing yeah. Sinatra. Mm-hmm. Know, and it's going to be at the Glen Gould Theater in Toronto on May the 5th. It's a big deal. Um, actually, if folks are interested in it, they could go to uh, www.voicesthatcare.com. Right? And we'll put okay. that up on, sure. our, yeah. we'll put that up on our social That's media. The ticket thing. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, Fred, during the break, asked about uh, the farmer song, which is, you know, we played a little bit of the other day. Mm-hmm. And um, when you go out on a, a bunch of touring where you're just doing Murray McLaughlin stuff, and you know I'm going to do a certain number of songs. Some of them might go back all the way to the farmer's song. They and you may, yeah. you may not have played that in a while. And I've asked other musicians this. Do you have to go back and go, where does where that change again? Do you, do you listen to it or do you know it? I know. Is that a stupid question? No, it's not. It, it, there, well, as, as I once said at great personal risk to my karate instructor, there are no stupid questions. I got a pretty good whacking for that. <laughs> um, no, the, the biggest risk with a thing like Farmer Song is, for me, when I'm performing, is I've forgotten, I'm, I mean, rather, I've performed it, excuse me, so many times that sometimes, you know, you, you go into a little bit of an autopilot mode and you start thinking, like, you know, I mean, what am I going to do next? You know, Whispering Rain or Down by the Henry Moore, and then you snap back into the song and you've completely forgotten where you are. Right. So suddenly you're... Can't remember if you've sang the second verse or not. And people are like, I can't believe you forgot the words of the farmer song. Does it bother you if people are out there screaming out the um, no, the no, titles no, of songs no, no, when no. you want to get on with the new Murray McLaughlin? No, the great thing about doing concerts is, first of all, the, the really hard and fast rules are that people like you better when the scenery falls down and your nose yep. lights up and your pants fall down. <laughs> and, but if you really get pissy about it, right. like if you react badly, they hate you. But if you you know if it rolls off your back like water off a duck and you just make it part of the experience, people love you for it because you're human. Yeah, you know, and, and well even said. even something as uh, strange as you know you're in the middle of the song. If you stop the song and go, have I done the second verse yet? <laughs> they love that shit. Um, well, the fact is, I mean, like a lot of um, singer songwriters, I went through my period where. You know, I mean, oh, for God's sakes, I want to sing that again. I mean, it's like I've died. I want to play my new stuff. But along somewhere along the line, I realized, well, the reason I'm playing that song is because it really means something to people. And a lot of people have come up and, you know, really thanked me for it and you know, shaken my hand or, you know, asked me to autograph a thing for their grandpa or their dad mm-hmm. who actually were farmers. You know, old guys with hard hands have come up and said, thanks, you really wrote that song for me. But that's a huge Canadian. That's one of those huge Canadian songs that everybody knows. On the strength of that song, um, something really interesting happened to me. This is a long time ago now. But do you remember a character named Studs Turkle? Sure. Mm-hmm. He was a writer for the Chicago uh yeah, and he had Tribune, a syndicated radio yeah. show out of Chicago. Uh, he was a huge, like a real lion of American yeah. literature. Kind of like an Andy Rooney figure. Yeah, much more, in- sorry, I was going to say much more intelligent, but I guess that's a little... <laughs> you know, it's, Studs, his seminal book was called Working. Uh, it was a real a series of interviews with Americans, just, you know, working class Americans. But anyway, I went on his radio show and I played on his radio show. And after I'd finished playing Farmer Song, he said, that's the reason I invited you to play on the radio, because I, I'd heard that song. And, you know, and he said, there's only three other people that have ever played music on my show. 
And I went, oh, wow. that's nice. And he said, you want to know who they are? And I said, okay, sure. And he said, Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan, and John Prine. Wow. And I went, oh. <laughs> that's Okay. It's pretty good. I, I think he liked the song. <laughs> um, I think he liked what it said. You know, mm-hmm. like the idea of like saying just a simple thank, thank you, you yeah. to mm-hmm. uh, people who are, you know, I'm always on this soapbox that, you know, with the convergence of reality TV and social media and, you know, as mm-hmm. my mother-in-law calls it, the interweb. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it seems like a lot of people get, I mean, I actually say this, a lot of people get a lot of attention for doing not very much. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, something that we could do. I think we could do better. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of reality television, you know, we have a reality television star as the president. Who'd have thought that would have happened? I was hoping I'd get through a whole day without right, hearing you know his name, you know? Yeah, let's, let's, <laughs> let's leave it, because he and I can go. We, we could be here for hours yelling about Trump. Um, and I want to ask a question about the song. Well, wait a minute. No, because it's, you know, because there's a Canadian angle to this. And what drives me nuts, like, since my son was 18 years old, I have, short of beating him with a stick, said, you are going to get your ass out and you're going to vote every municipal. Yep provincial federal because if you don't vote you deserve what you get sure so the thing that drives me nuts is when people don't show up to participate in the democratic process and take that for granted i mean you know i'd hate to sound like an old republican but people died for this shit Mm -hmm. and it's not something people should take for granted because you know it can all disappear pretty quickly and if you don't vote, look what you get. Well, exactly. that's it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I see. I feel sorry for those folks who are demonstrating on the street in the United States, but I, I also go like, well, you all showed up to vote for Barack Obama, you know. And We've said the where same were thing. you this time? No, that's right. It wasn't voting that uh, got Trump elected. It was not voting yeah, that got him elected. Exactly, and it's sad. And the same people that didn't vote are the ones complaining the most now. So. One would surmise. So, you know, my my axe to grind is, you know, participate or you get what you deserve. You know, do we really actually want to have that schmuck for leader of the free conservative party in Canada? It's funny you say that because I have always pounded that into my kids, too. In fact, I've heard conversations. Did you vote? Well, I guess so. I I don't want Fred to find out. I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's interesting because what I was going to ask you about the farmer's song is we were trying to figure out the other day when we were talking about Mm -hmm. you coming here. The lyric in the chorus, you say straw hats and old dirty hankies mopping a face like a shoe. Yeah. Explain. Does it need explanation? Well, obviously it does. Well, there were some when I way back when when I went on the Ralph Emery show down in Nashville, I, I could sort of see people in the wings, you know, rustling through their thesauruses and such, trying to figure out what the hell that was. But it was, um, let's see, when you put like in it, it's a simile. So essentially it meant, you know, your face is like leather. So right. It's mm. beaten by the sun, your face is like leather. So if your face is like a shoe, it's kind of like leather. Uh, Murray it just came out. What do I know? I'm a I songwriter. Liked it. Mm. My, uh, my brother's name is Steve. He just texted me. He used to produce a show out west on CBC called uh, Country West. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says here, the first time you appeared on a show with KD Lang was in 1986. Oh, he had that he was had a television both, show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I remember had, that. Yeah. And uh, KD was very green at the time. Yeah, in '86, she was just somebody in Alberta that was quirky and mm-hmm. well, she was uh, still talented. doing cowpunk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. His uh, sawed-off boots and crinolines and stuff. Yeah, she was sort of. Oh, I remember. Wild, yeah. I remember bouncing through CFNY wearing those those outfits. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, let's see if somebody has a call. Hi, who's this calling us? Hello. Matt. Hello. Hello. Go ahead, hit it again. All right. Uh, Murray McLaughlin, the new album is called Love Can't Tell Time. I'm Toronto Mike. I produce Humble and Fred. If you want to hear more of me, I host a podcast called Toronto Miked. If you go to torontomike.com and click Notable Guests at the very top, you can cherry pick an episode and just check it out, see what you think. There are plenty of Humble and Fred episodes to choose from. Thanks for listening. Peace and love. This episode of Humble and Fred was brought to you by Gig Sky, the Retirement Sherpa, the Chambers Plan, Bodog, and our newest sponsor, GoDaddy. For Humble and Fred, I'm Dan Duran, and remember as Howard says, just the odd ones are giant fuckheads. <laughs>